Good morning, everybody. My name is Kevin Uphill, and I'm the chairman of Avondale Corporate. And welcome to our webinar this morning, The Art of Business Valuations and Preparing for Sale. Those of you who don't know, Avondale Corporate specializes in emerging mid-market business sales. So that means valuations of two to 50 million, typically uh, companies with profits of in excess of 350,000. I'm joined today by Tim Hardman, who's my co-director, who's going to be very specifically talking to you a little bit about the science, but also more about the art of valuations. And there is a fundamental difference. There is an art to them. And that's the, the, real, the real theme of this. We're going to talk for 20, 25 minutes with some technicalities just to give you uh, a steer and create some foundations. But actually, after that, we're really interested in questions from you. And probably that's where we all gain the most value from uh, the, these webinars this morning. We've got up to about an hour, but please, please, please fire in your questions in the q and I've actually also been sent uh, a whole load uh, here, uh, which I will also try and run through. So there's lots and lots of questions and it'll be, be good energy on that. We will be recording the session. So uh, don't worry uh, if, if uh, you've got colleagues that you want to hear it, you can just point them at our website or our recording. Uh, so good morning, Tim. After your panic on Zoom updating, uh, uh, you're in and relaxed. Oh, well, morning, Kevin. I, mean, I guess the first question, is it working? Can you see me? Yeah, I can see you. I've got no idea whether they can see me, of course, because anyway, move on. No, Zoom. Right. Uh, so, Tim, I, I, I'm going to go the old-fashioned way and change the slides for you. Yeah. Yes, please. Okay. Do you want the first slide? Stay put for, for just a moment. So do you want me to take over here? Yes, please. Yeah, okay. Uh, good morning, everybody. Um, and thank you for the introduction, Kevin. And yes, we've had some great questions in from um, the audience. So thank you very much for that. There are some sort of generic about how to communicate valuation simply, uh, hearing other people's views and so on and so forth. So hopefully that will come through in this session for you. And there are some quite specific ones, which I will try and weave a couple into the presentation. Um, some I may have to, to leave till afterwards. So if you've asked a question and we miss it, um, please nudge us and we'll try and come back to it specifically. Um, so what I'm going to talk about this morning, I, uh, Kevin, we, we have a hard stop on this one. So Kevin has said to me he's going to keep me to time on this. So I'll do my best. Um, but I want to talk to you a little bit about the principles of valuation. I'm not going to spend ages and ages on a long technical briefing because I think most people will understand the principles. I'm going to run through a tiny little worked example, which I think just brings in some common mistakes and, and perhaps how to avoid them. Um, and then, as Kevin says, you know, the, the best piece of this is always opening up to questions. So we'll try and get to that as quickly as we can. Um, yes, Kevin, next slide, please. Okay, firstly, um, I wanted to look at the sort of primary uh, methods talked about for valuing companies. And that brings in my first question, which I'll come on to, do valuation methods vary by industry? I'll come to that in just a moment. But the first one on your list and, well, and the second one on your list, I'm going to uh, skip over because effectively it's not very exciting if the value of a business isn't more 
than the sum of the parts, which is what the asset or book value is. And liquidation value is frankly worse because it's very often in a distressed type environment. So you're possibly not even getting the value of the assets. So we're going to move past those. Um, discounted cash flow. Um, I have frankly never ever seen it used in a real life environment. I've heard it talked about, but, but I've never ever seen anybody actually value a business using it. Um, and my theory behind that is, is I think it's a very useful tool if you are investing in an asset, um, but you need a very defined outcome for what that asset will bring you. So let's take the classic sausage factory example. If you're putting in a new production line into your sausage factory, you already have one, you know the output, you know what it can generate. So you know the future revenues from it, you know the margin from selling sausages. And therefore by using discounted cash flow, um, which is uh, a sort of reverse of compound interest, if you like, you can work the maths back to see when your investment will pay off. For a business as a whole, I think there are just too many variables and that's why it doesn't get used. Um, multiple of annual recurring revenue is used in very, very specific scenarios, uh, typically around software as a service, SaaS businesses. Um, it, it is very specific to that sector, and I think it gets used where the classic scenario with software as a service is there is huge heavy investment in the software itself up front, and then when you take it to market and it becomes proven, I, you're getting users who are paying you, the subscriptions are rolling through, and so on and so forth, um, but very often it hasn't come into profit yet because these types of businesses tend to have a bar they need to get beyond before it starts making profit. So a profit multiple won't work. So a multiple of annual recurring revenue, i.e. the contracted revenue is sometimes used. But again, that's so sector specific that we're not going to focus on that today. Um, and Kevin, if my memory serves me right, I think I have written a paper on it. So if anybody is particularly interested in it, I think that is available in knowledge base on our website. So there, there, there are loads of guides and articles. There's, there's huge amounts of stuff. So, uh, yeah, yeah. But about two years ago, I think I wrote a paper on it, which yeah, I've been there. Um, sector specific, I will focus on a little bit when I move on to the next couple of slides. Um, it is relevant and people will look at that. And also the second one, sector comparables. People will also look at sector comparables. So they are relevant, but I think they all come back to the primary method that gets used by, by a country mile, I should say. Um, and even when other methods are used, such as sector specific and sector comparables, um, still the multiple of EBITDA or EBIT tends to get used by pin it. So that's what I'd like to focus on this morning. Um, Kevin, uh, yes, next slide, please, Kevin. Um, this one jumps into a sort of indication of the types or the, the, the quantum of multiples that tend to get used for valuations. Um, this is not sector specific. Um, and I think the, the thing you can see very well, two things I think come out very clearly from this slide is one is there is a huge range from lower end to upper end. 
Um, the other is you can simply see that scale, i.e. the bottom axis being EBIT or EBITDA, um, tends to drive higher multiples. And that makes sense. You know, the small business making 100,000 profit is probably one or two or three individuals, in which case the business's success or failure is very reliant on a very small number of moving parts. Whereas as you start getting into tens, twenties, thirties of millions EBITDA, there is probably an awful lot more structure, controls, processes, checks and balances, et cetera, et cetera, in the business, i.e. in all probability, and I keep coming back to the word probability because none of these are absolutes, um, it is a lower risk investment. Um, the other thing I would point out, and this sort of comes to questions I'll, I'll come to later is, these figures have remained incredibly consistent for decades. There has been very, very little variation through recession, through COVID, through Brexit. Um, you see tiny fluctuations, but the bounce back is almost instant. Um, so that just gives an indication. One thing I would say is please don't print this off and use this as an absolute matrix. It's, it is an indication and a couple of examples. So. We also get very, very wide variations in what different buyers or investors will deem to be the value of a business. So I've got a relatively small transaction at the moment uh, where the lowest bid we had was a little under three million. And the deal we are doing and going through due diligence at the moment, touch wood, is over four million. So that's quite wide. Um, I had one two or three years ago where I think the lowest bid was 18 million. Um, but the successful bid was mid-30s. So again, a very, very wide range in the view different buyers and investors will have on value. So so can I just hack, hackle you for a second on this? Yep. Because you said it doesn't change much over the duration, but we've seen interest rates go up fivefold. One, one of the questions was, you know, what, what's the impact of that on, on, on valuations? And so what are you seeing on the street? Um, minimal impact. I mean, I, I, the interest rate question is a very, very good one. But, but if you are looking at the real impact an interest rate of 2% compared to 5% has on a million pound borrowing over, say, five years, the difference is sub £20,000. So when you factor in all the other variables around opinions on value, and strategic fits and so on and so forth, I'm not seeing that a change in interest rates is making any significant um, difference. We have seen a slight increase in deferred payment instruments though for, for, for selling, haven't we, rather than borrowing? Possibly, but the other thing to bear in mind is very few of the transactions we do involve very much borrowing. Um, so it so it doesn't kick in there, and what you do, what you tend to find is when you have these very wide fluctuations in the view on value. You know, quite commonly, we've had a buyer say, "Oh, to me, it's three million pounds for want of a better number," and that gets discussed. Well, because I'm borrowing this, I'm doing that, I'm doing the other, and the cost of, and that's all I can raise, and so on and so forth. Well, that's all fine and all absolutely valid. It doesn't then stop us selling the business to the person who's got four million pounds in cash. I can say, I mean, would you not say also interest rates slow the economy up? In slow economies, people need to do deals more because they've got to consolidate more and, and there's less quality companies. So 
that's why values don't drop because the rarity stays. Well, you, you've always got that. And we, um, I mean, you must remember, Kevin, we were asked the question an awful lot um, during the recession is what's the wider market like? You know, is it a good time to sell a business? Now, statistically, deal volumes were down enormously, um, but valuations weren't. And, and what I would say to people is all about your own business. It's not about the wider market because in a poor market, for whatever reason, and whether that's driven by interest rates, driven by inflation, driven by anything else, if you are performing well within that market, i.e. outperforming your peers, there is an argument to say you're more valuable because you're doing something different and you're bucking the trend. So I think, yes, of course, interest rates are relevant, but it's very specific to very specific scenarios. And when we're looking to sell a company and we're talking to two, three, four, five bidders, the ones that are struggling around interest rates are probably the ones that fall by the wayside and we don't do the deal with. Does that help? Yeah, thank you. Um, so I think I think that probably covers that. What so one of the things we I think is clear through this size is, is scale is possibly one of the largest influences on the multiple used in evaluation, but there are all sorts of other influences. So Kevin, if you could flip onto the next side slide, please. And again, this this is an indication of the sorts of things that might influence. This is not a sort of checklist for you to go through and, and tick. But on the left, in the orange, I've set out what I believe are the, the elements that every, every business has. You know, whatever size, whatever sector, you know, every business has. I, I get questioned on, does every business have a plan? Uh, my litmus test is the guy selling the big issue. Um, and I would conjecture... Yes, he does have a plan. He plans to get out of bed in the morning and go and stand on whatever street corner it is and shout big issue at the top of his voice. It may not be a written plan. There may be a selling budget, but nevertheless, it's a plan. Um, and I find it's a useful tool because within this, you can look at the pros and cons or the, the SWOT, if you like, of each element of the business. Um, and the more you have that are positive, um, mitigate risk, et cetera, et cetera, the higher multiple a buyer is likely to perceive is relevant to the business in question. Um, but as again, I say, this is not definitive. It's not designed as a tick list. This is the art side of it that Kevin referred to right at the beginning. It's the sort of concept behind it. And do bear in mind, any investment is about risk and return. And a business is no different. Um, it's a very complex one and it has lots of moving levers, particularly if uh, you know it's a merger where two businesses are coming together. So it's not just about the standalone, but still the same fundamental pr principle applies. It's risk to return. Um, and then I want, I want to here go to a couple of specific questions. So we had one individual ask, how do you value, value technology such as a platform used by clients? Um, I, I think that's an interesting one. And I think it depends what the technology is and how mature the technology is. So in a mature environment, then that technology should, in theory at least, um, translate to profitability, because if not, why is it there? 
in which case you can go back. I'm not going to ask you to go back on the slides. I'm sure everybody can remember the previous sort of profits to multiples. It would impact and the value would come through in that. Um, I referenced SaaS businesses earlier, software as a service, um, where you know technology is the is the lifeblood, if you like. Um, and that's where, in those circumstances, where heavy investment has been made in a particular technology. But it is proven, and that is the critical thing, i.e. it is generating revenue. Um, then a different valuation approach, i.e. multiple of annual recurring revenue, might be used instead of a multiple of EBITDA. But that is critical, and I take you back to the 90s. Um, we got... It was the tail end of it, but the dot-com boom, we did have people getting in touch with us saying, oh, I've got this great platform, or even I've got a URL, i.e. a website, and it's a great name, what's it worth? Well, the answer is nothing, you know, unless it's proven, unless it's doing something, unless it's generating revenue, it's nice to have a why. So there's got to be the why, and it's got to be evidence. Um, somebody else... Tim, yeah, I'm going to just constantly start you on that. This is, if you like, this is you take your standard multiple on your other graph, and then you downgrade your upgrading it, depending on how positive or negative you are on some of some of these aspects. Yep. We have, we did sell a training business which had a great landing platform. That was its whole marketing. You know, and it translates to profit. That that you know the the fact that our client that was buying, the, sorry, the buyer could use that landing platform to also increase traffic for their own training services meant we got way over the average EBITDA profit just because they had so much traffic. Which is why you have this very very high range in low, mid, and upper end of multiples. So what's happening in that scenario? is the platform is probably generating a continuity yeah. um, of revenue. Um, it's happening by itself because it's happening through technology, not through, you know, salesman director having to pick up the phone every single time they're trying to bring in revenue. It's just happening automatically. It's rolling, 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 and therefore, A, generating profits, and B, generating a much higher multiple. So yes, it's relevant. Yes, it's valued. Yes, the value is subjective, um, but it still gets covered in the fundamental principle of a multiple times a profit. It just creates a much higher multiple. Yeah, yeah because you, you've got the right bar with what we want, we need motivation. So their strategy aligns with the multiple influence of plus. You don't know whether it's going to be graded or not, but if you get your auction right, you will. And that, that's that's when you know valuations become an art, not a science. So, which is a good Absolutely. point, Tim, because just on this, we've had the question, why do people like us insist on sharing with clients what we think the value guide is when we when we take a project? Because it, it's yeah, we just said with auctions, we don't know. And sometimes we're very, very pleasantly surprised to get the right strategic buyer. But so so why do you start with Brokers, so the question, why do brokers set expectations with sellers on theoretical valuation models? Um, if you don't mind a slightly tongue-in-cheek answer, that depends on which broker you're talking about. Um, and I would, okay. I would suggest the motivations vary. But um, to give you a better answer, <laughs> um, I, I think it's fundamentally important to, to give people a guide of what reasonable expectations may be. Because A, for somebody looking to sell, a, a failed m and project, I think, is an absolute business disaster. Um, it's time-consuming, it's expensive, it's distracting, um, 
and you don't want it to go wrong for those reasons. Equally, you know, if there is something standing in the way of getting the number or the deal structure or wherever it may be that a seller is looking for, you don't want to be going back to market once whatever is standing in the way has been dealt with in two, three years down the line and be talking to the same people who went, oh, I remember that one kicking around a couple of years back. So it's one of those things you want to do once and get right once. So, so I think from that point of view, um, having a proper conversation with sellers about expectations um, and probability of achieving them is fundamentally important. Um, I suspect the person who asked the question, and I don't know this, this is pure conjecture, um, may be a frustrated buyer who's getting fed up with spending time and money looking at businesses where price expectations are off the scale. Um, and I, I can't, um, no, I, I don't really want to comment on what I think other well, advice. There is a bit of the Foxman's model sometimes with business brokers, isn't it? Overvalue, win the instruction, but they're biased towards the sale. But can we just talk actually more specifically about this? Because it, again, it comes back to the art of value, which is willing buyer, willing seller. You know, we will give a price expectation and then hopefully, you know, based on, on, on the maths and the multiple influences, and then hopefully go and beat it because we go out on our office basis and the market decides. And that that's Critical, but the seller's motivations are, are really critical because it's willing buyer, willing seller. Sometimes you get sellers that, you know, doesn't matter what their business is worth. They've, they've kind of got a sort of golf club valuation in their head as well, haven't they? And, and that that's relevant. They're, they're just not quite ready to sell. That, that may well be the case. And it's the, uh, I suppose that the, the number, the price yeah. is driven by one of two things in all probability. Um, or, or broadly, I'm sure there's all sorts of areas of grey in between, but either there is a requirement for some reason, and I've, I've done it literally over the last couple of weeks with a client where I've written a report um, which says this is what I believe is the low end that we could reasonably expect, and this is the high end of what we can reasonably expect. And I've given that report with the client's blessing to a very good wealth manager I know to say, please look at this and give the client what's going to happen for the next 30, 40 years of their life with that number and that number so they can make a decision whether this is the right route to go down today. Now, that's that's going into a lot of detail, but I think it's important and the client has made a decision to go ahead and, and, and look to sell. But I'd far rather give them an honest view and then turn around and say, no, not now. And then move on to the stuff you're going to talk about a bit later, Kevin, which is how do we improve, how do we enhance and do some work around that? And I think that's far more important. I think the other motivator for the number, the value, if I'm honest, is a score chart. It, it, it's a perceived value. So it's not about requirement. It's about what I've created, what I've done, and I want to feel good. And I'm not I'm not criticizing this by any stretch of the imagination. I'm just saying be realistic about it um, because I want to feel my life's work and my achievements have been valued. That's fine, but just know what you're doing. Um, there were two other questions I wanted to refer to in this bit before we move on. Somebody asked what influence on price does being a franchise have? Um, 
it's difficult to answer as an absolute because it depends what franchise and what the terms of the franchise agreements are. But I would say in all probability, it has a negative impact on value, not a positive one, because typically most franchise agreements will have restrictions. So a buyer's hands are likely to be tied in some way, shape or form as to where they can go with this business going forward. And whether that's supply chain, whether that's geography they can operate in, whether that's freedom of marketing, branding, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know. That's that's specific to the individual franchise. But as I say, I think it's unlikely to enhance. It would probably do the opposite in most cases. And then the third question I had on this section, somebody asked how contracts for products and services with get-out clauses impact future revenue turnover, forecasting, and sale value. I think on that one, I think, I think most contracts have a get-out clause in some way, shape, or form, and, and whether that's uh, failure to perform or whether that's just the end of the contract term or, or whether it is some sort of break clause, um, I would say, what's the history of it? So, you know, if nobody has ever exercised whatever clause it may be because the service is at a level or the contracts are well-written enough, um, you know, it's unlikely to be an issue if the business has a track record of people signing up for 12-month contracts and cancelling at six months. I think that might be problematic. Um, and then what I'm going to do is just run through a quick worked example. Um, and it's this is completely fictitious, by the way, with a lot of made-up numbers, um, which I hope might be helpful in dealing with a, a, a couple of other things. So, for example, somebody asked, many IMs, information memorandums, add back a host of exceptional items over the year to improve the profits and thus increase the valuation. Discuss. Okay, I will. <laughs> so if you could... Flip to the, yes, you've done it. Thank you very much. So this is just a, a little bit of an overview. <clears throat> it's a long established business. <clears throat> you can see the numbers. It's a steady ticking over business, um, you know, not setting the world alight, but doing quite nicely. Um, typical of this sort of size, um, you know, a couple of shareholders, one full time, one part time. It owns its freehold because, you know, it's a family business and that's perceived as good for the family. Why keep paying rent ad infinitum when we can we can own an asset? Fine. Um, it's got some equipment. Uh, it's built up some cash on the balance sheet and the shareholders are looking to retire. Um, now to come specifically to the, the ad backs, if you'd go on to the next slide, please, Kevin. This... Whoever asked the question is absolutely right. We see this a lot. And it is valid if done properly. Um, and by the way, I've, I've lumped in all of the sort of sins together. So this, this ends up being quite an extreme example. But it's got an EBITDA last full year's earnings of a million quid. Our seller is going... Oh, but there's so much potential. This, this oh, we, we could do so much if. So next year, it's going to be making 300k more profit. Um, the directors have been taking quarter of a million pounds out between them through salaries, pensions, what have you. 
Um, and the sellers have a perfect picture of what the buyer looks like, and there are going to be £100,000 worth of economies of scale achieved um, after the acquisition. So their million-pound EBITDA has just turned into a normalised EBITDA or an adjusted EBITDA of £1.65 million. Um, plucked a multiple of five out of the air, so they've then multiplied by five, um, they've added on the plant because that's theirs and that's tangible. Um, they've added on the freehold and they've said, well, the cash is ours. And therefore, they get to a valuation adding all that up of £9.7 million. Um, yeah, OK. Conceptually, I sort of get it, but I think they've done half the job. So on the left, I, I've on the left, I've left. I've left the, the previous numbers. But on the right-hand side, I've put what I think should be done in this scenario. And I've highlighted where my figure differs from the figures that were, were set out by the original ad-backs. Um, well, firstly, next year's profit being 1.3, not 1. Mm, well, why? You know, if this is doable, why haven't you done it over the years? You know, if we're mid-year... And the current run rate is as historically achieved. Well, is the profit ticking up by 70 grand, i.e. the 7% it's achieved on a historic basis? That's probably more realistic. Um, yes, I do think it is reasonable to add back director's remuneration and pensions and other benefits because with a privately owned business, they are rarely the commercial rate. So I would start by adding those back. Um, I would not factor in economies of scale um, for two reasons, really. Number one, you're on a hiding to nothing as far as negotiation is concerned because you turn around to the buyer and say, ah, you're going to make an extra 100 grand, and the buyer says, no, we're not. Um, where do you go with that one? Um, secondly, even assuming the buyer is going to find 100 grand worth of economies of scale, it's because they have put in place the facilities, the capability, the what have you, to absorb certain core functions, i.e. they've already paid for it, they're not going to pay for it again. So I don't think that's uh, a, a reasonable adjustment. Um, but what they've missed is full-time MD and part-time administrator leaving and adding back leaves a hole. Um, somebody's got to fulfill those functions. So I've allowed, a, I mean, I've plucked 125,000 pounds out of the air for that as, as some illustrative numbers. You know, obviously a greater judgment call would need to be made in a real life scenario as to, to what was appropriate. And the other thing is, yes, I believe it is correct to exclude the freehold from the enterprise value and say that's an additional cost to the buyer if the buyer wants to buy the freehold. Um, but what I have allowed for is a... a, a property cost provision. And now whether that's borrowing to finance the property or whether it's the sellers retain the property in Propco in a pension personally and let it back to the company, there will be a cost involved with it. Um, and I think one of the key, key things that differs from the, the family business going, oh, it's great to build up this property asset because it gives us security and so on and so forth. The typical buyer goes, Commercial property, 5% return on capital employed, that's rubbish. Why do I want to invest my money in that? 
because if you look at a multiple of five, that's a 20% return on capital employed um, on, a, on a, a business asset as opposed to property. So the sort of buyer who is looking at this sort of investment probably isn't getting very excited by property investments. Um, if they are, they're probably doing it completely separately and they're not letting one confuse the other. So that's why I would always separate that and adjust. Hey, you've got a, just on this, I can see the difference in the two numbers, the 9.7 to the 6.85. But of course, you go out and offer the market for guys. What, what you yeah. haven't put on this is really how deal structure impacts on that valuation when you go out to offers. And we've had a good question here, which is yeah, what value should be assigned to the length of the time of the founders? So, so you know, if you, if you were going out and doing this deal and you've got your guy the 6.85 and you know, the sellers have maybe understood that it's not 9.7 uh, from, from the other broker's valuation. But we're going to try and beat 6.85 and, and should do. You know, earnouts are a way of doing that. But but what else? So what 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 value is assigned to the length of the time? What is a typical time? Do, do we, are we seeing more earnouts, those sort of things? Um, well, we've seen, we've seen earnouts for as long as I can remember. Or, or some sort of structure of the deal, whether it's a deferred payment, whether it's whether it's an earnout, you know, whether it is contingent on certain targets being achieved. Very often, financial. Sometimes it's simply contingent on uh, a seller remaining for a given given period of time to facilitate transition. Um, so there's there's a whole host of variations on a theme that can be used. I think for me. And the advice I would always give clients and the conversation I have with buyers, and buyers do ask a lot, they, they ask us a lot, by the way. Um, is your client prepared to accept a deferred payment or an earnout or some variation on a theme? Um, and if so, what proportion of the overall value would they accept? Um, well, the, the obvious answer to that one is, well, I don't know, you haven't told me what the value is. So if you offer me £100 million for it, we're prepared to accept 80 million, 80% of an earnout. If you're going to offer me £10 million for it, we're not. Um, so you've got to look at the whole rather than anything in isolation. Um, but the other point I, I will make to buyers, and this does it then bear out in the deals we do, is we are comfortable to give you, Mr. And Mrs. Buyer, some comfort that the whole house of cards doesn't come tumbling down the day the seller walks away. Right? So we're prepared to leave some skin in the game to give you comfort around transition and us, the seller, helping make sure it works for you. We are not interested in funding the transaction for you. We're not a bank. Yeah. Does that help? Yeah, no, that does. And it's different for every business. I've had one one buyer, notably a few years back, that absolutely yeah, refused to buy it with the, with the seller in situ. They decided the IP was great. They liked the team. They didn't like the seller. <laughs> it's an entrepreneur, it's a liability, it's all over the place. Or like, yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, uh, the, 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 and that, deals are complex and have very, very many moving parts. And therefore, yeah. it, it's very difficult to answer any one question absolutely in isolation from looking at the whole. Okay. We've had another point here uh, that, uh, on your you know valuation guide here before we move on to the next point, which is yeah, freeholds can be sold as part of the equation it, would it not be legitimate to put in a cost of buying a mortgage and, and including the freehold in it and um just you know allow well, that in the EBITDA multiply i mean that, that that's kind of what i've done here so the property provision may be rent it may be cost of borrowing yeah, yeah. um you, you know the, the numbers stack up very similar by the way when you do the maths yeah okay 
at five times 25k yeah there's a reduction of 100 on something or thousand on the valuation isn't it yeah 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 I, I, looked, I looked it up a couple of days ago just to double check just because i haven't looked at this for a long long time but i mean i think residential property averages a return of four point something percent um commercial is running at close to the five five and six or whatever it was I can't remember exactly okay um why so, did the value of cash produce? Sorry, I interrupted you, and then and then. Uh... Oh, sorry. Yes, the other—that's the other thing. I, where I differ from the other valuation is this sort of free cash. There was seven hundred grand in cash on the balance sheet. Well, businesses need cash to trade. Um, so a business is typically sold with everything it needs in place to trade. I and that's why the plant is not a separate line item that's added on. Because without the plant and equipment, the business ceases to exist the following day. So it needs to be included. The same applies to cash. Um, it doesn't need all 700,000. And by the way, if anybody, all I've done is a super, super quick ready reckoner on this one, um, which is the annual costs of the business. So I revenue less pre-tax profit or equal, actually EBITDA, divided by 26. And that's two weeks cover. Um, so if you haven't got a full-blown cash flow in front of you to do it properly, it's not a bad ready reckoner, assuming that um, customer terms and supplier terms are, are similar and are adhered to, I, you know, 30 days and, and customers and suppliers will pay reasonably on time. Um, as I say, it's not, it's not, it's not how you would do it in a real life scenario, but if you just wanted a quick gut instinct as whether the business needed the whole 700k worth of cash or needed a lower figure, it's not a bad starting point. Because most offers come in debt free, cash free, don't they? And, yes. and uh, for that, you're subject to all the other qualified cash free does not mean all cash free, it means yeah. <laughs> we had that client who, who interpreted us that went going to get out of the pub on completion. Do you remember that? So, Tim, that, that, that's really useful. I, I'm going to talk a little bit about preparing companies for sale. Is there anything else you want to sort of cover on that? And then we can also take I'm some just, questions. Yeah. I'm just having a quick look to see if there's any questions I've missed. Um, yes, there's a couple I've missed, which I'll address very quickly. And then if others come in, we can, we can pick up on those. So... Is there a resource? Oh, there's two or three. Sorry. Somebody did ask about um, the relevance of listed company multiples to unlisted companies. Um, I'd, I'd be cautious because almost by definition, if we go back to slide, I mean, don't do it, but go back to the, the multiple graph. Almost by definition, listed companies are going to be off that scale, i.e. much, much bigger numbers. And we can see that that scale drives multiple and therefore plucking a multiple from a, a FTSE 100 company and trying to then apply that to a 5 billion revenue, 100,000 pound profit company, I just don't think he's going to work. Now you could go, well, companies in this sector seem to be trading higher than the average for the FTSE, for example, therefore we think this smaller version is probably higher on the relevant section of the scale than, than some others. Yes, 
probably correct or, or, or reasonable. But again, what you tend to find is it's not about an industry that has a particular multiple. It tends to be about facets of an industry. If you could flip onto the next one, Kevin, please. That mean by definition, there's lots of good stuff in here. So, you know, um, I don't know, facilities management, um, you know, it, it's all contract based. Clients are tied in for three to five years, all the terms are agreed, et cetera, et cetera. So it's incredibly forecastable and so on and so forth. So, you know, that might be an industry. Um, the other one is, you know, managed MSP managed service providers, IT managed service providers, you know, all the clients are contracted and it's just rolling revenue coming in for help desk facilities and then some bumps on top of that when somebody wants to re-kit out their offers with new PCs or redo their networks and so on and so forth. So, so you'll find commonalities within sectors that tend to mean um, people will look at them and go, yes, there's, there's lower risk here, therefore the multiple could be a little higher. Yeah, is there, you know, one of the other questions, is there, is there a sort of index? Because you had, you, years ago, you had the BDO private companies index. Uh, well, that shows higher multiples because it tends to be bigger companies that are announced than that yeah, well, rather, than, rather than the smaller companies. What, what, where, where is it now in terms of indexes and, and where they look? I, I don't think there is one go-to resource. Yeah. Um, which tracked price earnings ratios for... 30 years or something like that appears to have stopped about two years ago. And I don't know why. Um, you know, you can look at, I mean, there, there is, um, oh, what's the name of it? Pitchbook lists known transactions. So you can look at transactions that have taken place. Um, the, the issue you've got with, with all of this is it's about knowing the full story. Exactly. We've got, we've got Pittsburgh and Mark to market, but you don't know what cash was included, you know, where the assets are undervalued, and was it yeah. a higher earnout? Again, multiple influencer. Exactly. It gives you a headline. So uh, it's only the very large transactions where you probably know the detail. Yeah. And as we've already discussed, taking the very large transaction and underpinning their multiple on a very small transaction comes with its own issues. Um, and the small transaction, and by small, I even mean 10 million quid, um, you know, the data isn't published um, as to, you know, it, it, if it's a small company, it's probably um, audit exempt. So even their accounting information is not fully in the public domain to make assessments. Um, and us human beings like to feel good so when our mate in the pub or the golf club or anywhere else says, oh, I hear you sold that, how was that? Oh, yeah, I've got 10 million quid for it, brilliant. And you forget to mention the fact that you actually got 5 million quid on day one, and there's another potential 5 million quid payable over the next five years, assuming you achieve 30% growth per annum, and so on and so forth. Um, and all of a sudden, somebody walks away with this lovely piece of data which says, oh, you've got a multiple of 10 times. And it's just not accurate. You haven't got the whole picture. Um, not not English to ask what did you get for your company either. You know? Well, I'm, I'm, <laughs> no, let's talk about money. <laughs> and, it's, and it's certainly not English to say, "Oh, stop telling corpies." What did you really get? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
So I will talk a little bit about, assuming that you're happy with evaluation, probably don't need my bit, but if you're unhappy or, or you want to make it more and, you know, you're, you're a buyer or entrepreneur and you're looking at how you increase the value of your own company, just to, some reminders and tips on, on what we call shareholder value strategy. I mean, as, as Tim was uh, mentioning, when we manage expectations for sellers, one of the reasons we do that is that often, you know, someone's come to us and said, we want to sell. We've said, no, you don't, you're not quite ready. And how do we make it more valuable? So this section covers some of that. Uh, and I think the first tip is really, do you own uh, what we call vendor assist, but, you know, you can use a market maker to help you do it. Do you own due diligence on your own business? You know, um, it's all about risk. Buyers are um, very focused on quality. They are uh, much, much faster than they were in the 2008, 2009, running up to that period since the credit crunch. The, the amount of compliance and fussiness buyers have is, is, is significant. You will not believe the level of due diligence they will put your business under. Um, and you will feel like you're asking or answering the same question five different times from five different uh, due diligence advisors. If you are going to pass master and get for a deal, you need to be able to answer all the questions and tick all the, the boxes on a, on a green light basis. So why not do it up front, bench test your own business? Um, you know, are your contracts fit for purpose on a, in an M&A situation? Um, and are all your legal positions sorted out? In particular, I mentioned here finance in real time. Um, on the deal Tim was looking at there, he was slightly dismissive of forecasts, but, but actually more and more deals are being done in the real time uh, what is the business doing now and what are the forecasts? I do think, you know, we need to be very measured and demonstrable about those forecasts. But uh, as many deals do have earnouts, forecasts become much more important. Uh, we just completed a, a, an EOT and I was very surprised that uh, uh, they couldn't produce a monthly P&L. And I sort of reminded my, my clients, I said, well, look, you know, you've got a finance director. They said, well, we look at the cash. And I said, yeah, but, you know, you've got to control the costs as well. And it's very easy for them to run away. And they did it quarterly, but you're going to do it anyway. Why not do it monthly? So, so a real key point from a value influencer perspective, being able to produce your numbers in real time, being able to create the underlying metrics to demonstrate why those numbers are doing what they are doing. Is that a cost per acquisition of a client KPI, for example? Um, are the forecasts sustainable? Can't we just, oh, well, we hope we're going to hit that. It's, we're hitting it. The run rate is this. You can see the, the curve up and the, the feeder to that curve is as follows. Because otherwise, if you're trying to use forecasts in a deal, people will always say, oh, no, no, that's a hockey stick. Uh, and it's well known, so sellers always, so buyers always laugh. Oh, we're always presented with a hockey stick from, 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 from the sell side team. Um, and, and we're saying, no, a hockey stick can be can be valuable if it's demonstrated effectively and broken down with the right uh, uh, metrics behind it. So a value influencer is being able to go right into your numbers, model them and demonstrate them uh, substantially in real time. So again, that's doing due diligence on yourself, looking at your financial setup and, and tracking and considering how you're going to present that to, uh, uh, to buy. Again, looking long term, if you were looking two or three years in, um, I think it is obvious that businesses that are not, um, or that are rarer, they're not doing the same as the guys down the road, will be more valuable. So 
in our strategy work, we do look at as a multiple influencer, how can you stand out from competitors? Um, and often that is about identifying in a business where you're being a busy fool um, and saying no to some of the stuff that you know, just isn't on the high margins and yes more to the stuff that is really working and we see the market dynamic uh, growing into. Uh, I call it navigating the rivers of cash, but if you can look ahead and see where the growth areas in your market are and place your business in front of those, the market will drive your growth rather than you having to drive your growth. So, so there is some real work there around, you know, do you need to be doing exactly what you're doing right now? Are all your services working? Are you also fighting on too many fronts? That is very, very common. We see people that have got... You know, it's the old phrase, turnover is uh, uh, um, vanity, profit is sanity. They've got too many services. They're not doing any of them well enough. Um, and therefore, they're losing advantage. But actually, if we narrow it down, we can focus potentially on the high margin ones, which the market demands. You can actually make a huge difference to, 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 to valuations uh, well ahead. I think another one is, is the streamlining. Um, interesting talking about tech. Every business is a tech business. Um, it's really, really important um, if you can use your automation, your tech. I mean, we now use AI in, in our business a lot. Um, I know it's a bit of buzzword AI at the moment, but it, it, it does work um, just in research resources and, and, and so on. But I think, I think you know, that means that whilst we have slightly uh, reduced some of our headcount, you know, we, we've control our costs more, we're actually paying people more. So our retention's gone up um, and, and we've, we've had, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, less, less cost in training. So streamlining may be about how do you remove the layer cakes in your business where you are not automated specifically, um, particularly also double touching. Um, when we're working with businesses in shareholder value, it's really interesting how many companies are what we call cultural companies. So they're a village, everybody's helping each other, they're all covering each other's deficiencies. And then you've got the, the city, which is very commercial, roles and responsibilities, do your job, and we're gonna hold you accountable. And if you're not doing your job, you're out. And actually to increase value, you may have to move from being the village to the city a bit more. And for us, that's all about being clearer on roles and responsibilities, looking at where the double touching has occurred, and also shuffling it around a little bit. Quite interesting, again, how many companies, when you look at the job descriptions, they were issued 10, 12 years ago. They've never been updated. So this, well, who's doing that? Who's in charge of that? And who's accountable for that is often uh, very uh, uh, sort of chaotic. So if you're going to streamline, there's some energy around that. But, but one of the points of that is if you do that work, can you create a more team-driven business, which is less dependent on you, one of the biggest multiple influences is, is if, if, if the owners are not the, the driving force behind the team, the, the second team management is the driving force behind the business. And, and that's because it's lower risk for a buyer coming in. Um, so the more dependent it is on you guys, the higher uh, the risk, the lower the, 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 the value. So the more team driven it is, the higher the value and therefore roles and responsibility and clarity and avoiding double touch and, and holding accountable are critical when you're looking at that, that, that streamlining. We've already touched a little bit on, on, on the legal stuff um, uh, uh, in terms of the due diligence. It's just going through 
building your own data room if you like. Um, if, if you haven't got time to do it, we will do it for you, bench testing it. Um, you know, uh, are the terms and conditions, are the supply agreements, have they got any change of controls, are the insurances right? All of those bits, the more you can tick and go green light, green light, green light, the easier it is for a buyer to come in and, and take it over. We're often asked, you know, if you're preparing a company for sale, aren't you, you know, uh, uh, causing a problem for the buyer because they've got less of a, you know, stretch for growth? And the answer is no, buyers want scale up. So the cleaner the business, the more team driven, the easier it is to buy from a compliance perspective, the faster they can scale it up. So they will value it uh, 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 um, significantly in, 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 in the process of, of, of an approach. So when, when we're working sales side, we, we now do everything through marketing data rooms and we're starting to present really almost the early diligence side of it. Because the other point of that is that it means you can find buyers globally. Um, exchange rates are good at the moment for, for uh, international buyers. So, you know, of our trade projects, we've probably got uh, four at the moment that are international. So it's important that in the run-up to a sale, you've bench-tested it, you've proved that you can build that data, but also when you actually go to sale, you are doing it on that basis because you can then go global uh, in, in terms of the, the, the market. So, so I'm going to, you know, we've got loads of IP on, on preparing companies for sale and, 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 and on valuations on our, our knowledge bank. But I'd like to sort of throw open to the floor and, and, and uh, see if there's any questions you guys have got uh, beyond what's been had. I know we've got one more in here. But also, Tim, were you with any observations there for you on preparing companies for sale? What, what do you like? What don't you like about what I've said? Um, I think... Uh... I think the hockey stick value, you know, projections, hockey stick valuation, all that sort of stuff is 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 really really interesting. Um, and I think forecasters' projections are relevant. Um, how far you go into the future, um, well, there'd be question marks, and that will be need to looked at on on a specific basis. But they've got to be credible. And I think that was the point I was trying to to make in the worked example is when a business has been running at seven percent through its history, why is it going to hit 30% next year? Unless you've got something really credible and tangible that evidences that. And I think the other thing I would say is if you have the luxury of preparing two, three, four, five years out from an exit, which we would always advise where possible, try and do, get into the habit of actually writing budgets and projections and have some commentary around them. Because if you can create a track re record of hitting them, and particularly with commentary that certain events have occurred, hopefully planned designed events, then all of a sudden your future projections become credible or more credible. And I think that's that's very, very valuable. We, we um, call that being sale ready anytime. Um, and actually it's really important, isn't it? Because you never know when the door's going to knock as well. I mean, okay, you can go open market, but you know, acquirers are looking for high quality companies. Um, you may get, you know, the right strategic direct approach and I mean we can help you negotiate it you've got to do sales um, uh, and it's an important part of your, you know your boardroom discussions if you like we tend to find a lot of falls when we talk to them you know, how often do you have a board meeting um, and it you know once a quarter or once every six months uh, and they are very focused on operational uh, uh, but they're not looking at this sort of stuff which is you know strategy really um, and it's a really how do we create a shift in the leadership team's time so that you know the second tier understand that they may be managing a multiple 
um, you know, how do we make the revenue more recurring? How do we demonstrate those forecasts uh, going forward? Tim, you've had another question uh, on uh, the uh, example you gave, uh, which is uh, any example, you added the freeholders an additional asset. Was this example just an office? If you had, say, a factory which is integral to the business, um, is that also added on separately or should it be reflected in the enterprise value via the multiple? Well, it is because what what we've done with that, if we've we've said uh, whether it's an office, whether it's a factory, what have you, um, the principle is the same: is the, the buyer may or may not want that freehold asset. Um, I'd say the vast majority, or the majority of the case, the answer is they no, they don't because it's not the best return on capital employed, but they might do. So. What we've done is allowed, if my memory serves to be right, I think we met allowed £25,000 property cost. Um, now, whether the buyer buys the property as part of the deal, um, they will probably want to factor in cost of borrowing against it um, because you can relatively easily raise uh, against a freehold property. If they're not buying it and you're doing granting a lease, then there will be a rent. So what we're doing is allowing a cost which will cover off either scenario. That makes sense. Um, Tim, as you know, I've got a hard stop. So um, I'm going to say thank you for your time today. I'm putting up Tim's contact details uh, and mine, but I think, you know, on valuations, we, you know, we really don't bite. We're market makers. We're very happy to choose a fact early on, give you some observations, value tips, um, and also uh, I think a, a gap analysis, you know, what's it worth now? What could it be worth? All incredibly useful for, for strategy for, for, for leaders. So please email us if you've got more questions. We'd love to hear from you. So that was incredibly useful. Thank you for your time this morning and much appreciated. We will be circulating the questions and, and the webinar as well. So don't panic. You don't need to hang, hang on to your notes. But thank you all very, very much for, for, for joining in uh, today. Tim, anything you want to say as a finish? Or? Um, I, yeah, final point. I don't appear to have a phone number, but my full contact details are on the website. Thank you all. Thank you all. Have a good day.